Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Dr. Angus McIntosh, who is probably one of the rarest people you'll find in the United States who has an understanding of constitutional law, property evaluation, and created a new methodology with respect to valuing, evaluating, and analyzing Western split estates of ranches. He knows more about federal and state lands and water than most people in the country. He is a paid consultant and also has functioned as an expert witness for ranchers having to do with federal land management. He has a background and a career as a U.S. forestry employee in range management. He has tons of experience and he really understands the devil is in the details We're going to talk to him today about water rights, the appropriation doctrine, the riparian doctrine, Spanish and English law, groundwater, and some very complicated and important landmark cases uh, regarding the U.S. Supreme Court as it relates to resources. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Dr. Angus McIntosh to its rainmaking time. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for being with us. It's my pleasure. What led you to get involved in this very narrow but yet very, very important area of law and property rights? I guess it was because I was working for the Forshers in the late 1980s and early 1990s in a time period when there was a lot of controversial policies coming down from the federal government. Uh, If you recall the change on the range program that they had, and a lot of ranchers got together and even took a court case to the U.S. Supreme Court with Bruce Babbitt trying to implement these various kinds of changes in federal policy. And I was working for the Forest Service at the time, and it was a hot issue, an issue of confrontation between ranchers and federal agencies. But how come you got involved, you personally? Because I saw a lot of things going on that I knew were wrong, that the federal agencies were imposing on ranchers that were infringing on their property rights. And I guess my conscience dictated to me that I had to stand up, even against my own agency bosses, to try to do things the right way. How were you received? Not very well. Were you fired? They made an attempt, but I hadn't done anything wrong. I was actually standing up for the law, and so in the end, it was all settled out of court, but I retained my job and got everything back they had taken away from me, and I continued working for the Forest Service for several more years after that. So I just finally had enough. I couldn't keep working for them, knowing that their policies were what I considered unconstitutional. Could you explain the layout of the eastern and western side of the United States, this riparian doctrine and the appropriation doctrine to the public? Give us the context in which this is... Well, uh, a lot of people don't understand that there are basically two entirely different laws with respect to the governing of water in the United States, and it's simply because of the actual physical conditions that exist in the United States. There's a very instructive case. The opinion was written by William Rehnquist when he was a justice on the Supreme Court back in 1976, I believe. It was the uh, California versus U.S. case. And in that case, he, he gives a very concise and very clear legal history of how water law developed in the United States and the fact that in the eastern part of the United States, east of the 100th meridian, 
which is a line that runs north to south. If you were to draw it from North Dakota along the Missouri River, where it runs north to south in, in North Dakota, if you were to draw that line straight south to about San Antonio, Texas, it kind of splits the central states in half. And east of that line is where the riparian doctrine of law applies to water. And west of that line, what's called the prior appropriation water doctrine, is the law that governs the land in the western part of the United States. And it's simply based on the fact that in the eastern part of the United States, water is plentiful. West of that line, which is approximately where the 30-inch rainfall zone ends, water is more scarce, not as plentiful or available, and that's how uh, that developed. But one has to do with English law, which is the riparian doctrine. The other one is Spanish law. Why are they different? That's correct. The Spanish law was developed in the Iberian Peninsula, uh, which was an arid part of the European zone, and it was brought over by the Spaniards when they came in settled into Mexico and Central America. And as they moved their civilization north into the southwestern part of what's now the United States, that water law followed with them, and it was perfectly applicable to that part of the country. And the essential element of the prior appropriation water doctrine is first in time is first in right. And therefore, you develop the system, they develop the system of senior water rights, junior water rights, and it doesn't matter whether your property adjoins a stream or a river or not, whereas under the riparian doctrine, every person that their property adjoins a river, they have an equal right to the use of that water as every other landowner whose land adjoins the river. So someone in New Orleans has the same right to use the waters of the Mississippi as someone in Minnesota or in that area. When we talk about water rights, aren't these laws all based on water from snowmelt or aquifers, rainfall water, correct? For the most part. There's also groundwater law that varies a little bit from state to state in the western states. But uh, for the most part, you know, those waters are, are dependent on rainwater. So groundwater law is about the management and allocation of rainwater, correct? That's, I guess... At uh, least at this time. on what state you're in. Okay. Essentially, in that 1976 California versus U.S. decision where Rehnquist wrote the opinion and gave the history of the prior appropriation water doctrine in the western United States, uh, he talks about how the federal government, Congress, had severed all the water in the west, west of that 100th meridian, Congress, by their policy, had severed all the water, both surface and groundwater, on federal land anyway, from the soil, so that the ownership of the land being in the federal government became irrelevant. Anyone who wanted to appropriate that water and put it to beneficial use under the laws, customs, and decisions of the courts in whatever state or territory they were in each person had an equal right to pursue that. And then whoever the first person was to take that water and put it to beneficial use acquired the senior water right. Am I under the illusion that when you buy land, if you have an aquifer on that land, it automatically is owned by you? Or is that false? In most Western states, once you acquire the title for that land, 
we'll say a homestead or acquires a patent from the federal government. Then the prior appropriation water doctrine in regards to other people trying to drill wells on that land, they can't just come in and start drilling a well. But in some states, some of the western states, let's say that an adjoining landowner, an adjoining homesteader, he drills a well and starts pumping water from the same aquifer that you may be pumping water from. If you can show that they are affecting your water table, that gives you a cause of action in court. It just varies from state to state. Some states regulate it a lot more stringently than others do. In all of your travels and work and expertise, do you have favorite places you feel in the United States constantly do the right thing with respect to water and land? I don't know if I could judge every state. Well, just the ones that you have experience with that you feel consistently do the right thing with respect to honoring the laws. I think that, and of course, you know, I may have people that disagree with me, but from my experience, the state of Nevada has been pretty straightforward and honest with people, I think, for the most part, in their water adjudications and things that are related to ranchers' water rights. Any other states? Probably the, probably the best that I'm familiar with. Wow. What about Colorado? You know, I don't want to pass judgment one way or the other. I'm More complicated? Yes. You know, like every other Western state, there's a lot of political pressure um, put on to state agencies to reallocate water that would deprive the prior appropriators of their legitimate rights. And so in Colorado, there are some situations going on right now, particularly in the, the northeastern part of the state, where state agencies have simply shut down wells of prior appropriators and are now giving out pumping permits to people that are junior appropriators. And there's an awful lot of conflict going on right there. So you can still own your land have your own water rights, but then have them revoked, in a sense. Right. I don't think they have sufficient evidence to, you know, support the actions that the state engineer has been doing and the Department of Water Resources has been doing to people in the northeastern part of the state where they've just come in and put locks on over 800 irrigation wells have been shut off by the state. That's frightening, don't you think? There's a lot of controversy going on surrounding that. It sounds very much like the eminent domain grab is in full force. To be able to just walk in like that and shut it off. It's not even a proper constitutional exercise of eminent domain. Because eminent domain involves government declaring that your property is necessary for some government purpose and then paying you just compensation to take that property. In this case, they're just simply taking it. No compensation, no due process. They just just simply arbitrarily decided we're shutting off some people's water and not others. What do you think it's about? I believe that ultimately it's because of this political pressure I was talking about, where you've got Denver and what they call the Front Range, in Colorado, all the major cities, the largest part of the population is on the eastern slope of the Rocky Mountains. In the Denver, Colorado Springs, Fort Collins, all up and down that side of the mountains, 
there's a lot of growth going on, population growth. Municipalities are demanding water, other industries, people just want to water their lawns or put in golf courses. And because there's a large demand for water and they perceive the government has power to be able to provide that, they'll use any means at their disposal to be able to acquire those waters. Well, you know, I found out in 2004 that there's snowmelt, there's rainfall, and then there's something called primary water, water that comes from in the earth, not trickled down, but deeper into the earth, and that it can be made available to people anywhere in the world at any time into perpetuity, which really translates, now I'm very clear, that the geology even has been off for a long time. You and I are talking about laws that were based on the premise that water is scarce. And in the context of rainfall and in the context of snowmelt, that's true. In the context of this other area of water, this other kind of water, it's untrue. So my question to you is, would it help alleviate activities of confiscation if the states knew they didn't have to go grab and take people's water, that they could just provision their own water wherever they are. In other words, they could use a different method to locate it, to bring it up, and to manage it, and that they didn't have to do any of this, or states didn't have to make deals to get water from other states. What do you think about that? Well, I think that that would be very beneficial, and the reason is because individuals let's say a farmer, their budget is based on what they are able to produce, whether it's livestock, whether it's crops, and they are financially limited in what they can do to be able to provide themselves with the water that they need. These are the people that typically have the senior water rights. The the farmers and ranchers, they came first. They appropriated these surface waters, these shallow aquifers that are based on percolating water that trickles down from rainfall, river seepage, and things of this nature, and that's where their water comes from. Whereas municipalities, which have, you know, a tax base that takes in every form of industry and landowner that there is, government entities, the state, counties, municipalities that may have a large demand for water, they've got the deep pockets. They can afford deep well drilling technology. They can get down to this primary water, down to these ancient aquifers, and be able to bring that water up and supply themselves with as much water as they need and not have to confiscate water from these other entities, farmers and ranchers and the prior appropriators of the service waters. We won't get into why they aren't doing it because several of the people in the state governments have known about primary water and there's a lot of infighting and conflict with geologists and other types of tools and methods that are have been used effectively to locate the water. When I think about water scarcity, particularly in the United States, we keep hearing about how Texas and New Mexico are suffering tremendously. A, do you agree? And B, what do you think it would take to alleviate that kind of suffering on a legal level where there wouldn't be a power grab of the water, but the water would be provisioned? In other words, you can't change human nature. And if states act improperly and unconstitutionally, 
then what do you do? Now, in your professional experience, do you feel that Texas and New Mexico operate constitutionally more of the time than other states? I do know that you know, a lot of these states in Texas and New Mexico are one of them. The Pecos River Compact, the Rio Grande, there are these interstate compacts or agreements that are basically wrapped around this law of prior appropriation. But the Supreme Court also interjected a concept in the early 1900s of what they call equitable apportionment where because they feel that these are interstate streams, that there should be some kind of interstate allocation between the states that these streams run through. Now, if they instead of bickering and wrangling and arguing over how much each of these states should get based on this concept of equitable apportionment, simply tapped into these deep water aquifers, That would eliminate a lot of conflicts. It would probably end up saving the taxpayer dollars because whenever you go into court, the only people that are really making money are the lawyers. But by tapping into these deep water aquifers to provide this water that these municipalities need, they would be able to get around these conflicts and not even have to cause all this heartache and disturbance in their society. I want you to explain to me why it is that water is considered a mineral legally. There are court cases, U.S. Supreme Court cases, that have addressed this issue. When you break everything down on the earth, you've got basic animal, vegetable, and mineral, as they say. And water, of course, is a mineral. But the Supreme Court has said on several occasions that it is obviously not a mineral that the federal government intended to reserve or allow to be appropriated under the federal mineral land laws. And so even though it technically falls into that category of mineral, it's not the kind of mineral that the government intended to uh, have regulated under the mining laws. When you buy land... Do you acquire mineral rights as part of that purchase, or is that a separate purchase altogether? The case law that I'm familiar with, even at the state level, they don't consider water as a valuable mineral. For example, if land is sold and the mineral rights are reserved to another party, those are usually considered what are called the valuable minerals, gold, silver, copper, hard rock minerals. They even have separate reservations for oil and gas, which are considered minerals. Even though natural gas is a gas, it still falls into this category of a hydrocarbon-based mineral. And so there's different reservations of different types of minerals, but never have I heard of where water was considered one of these reserved minerals. It typically always follows the ownership of the fee land. So why would a homeowner or a property owner have to get a permit to drill a well on their own land? Because in some states, for example, I'm thinking of Arizona, where they have what are called active management areas, where if you want to drill a well in one of these areas, say you're in the area around Prescott, Arizona, where there's a lot of individual homes that have wells, which I would consider shallow wells, 
which may be a few hundred feet deep, and they're all tapping into the same aquifer. And so if they allow more than what that shallow aquifer can handle, then it draws down the wells for everybody. You know, they try to regulate it through a permit system and monitoring to make sure that you're not over-pumping so that you are impacting or affecting your neighbor's well. Got it. Do you feel that it's over-regulated or under-regulated or neither? In some areas, it probably does need to be regulated, but when we start talking about primary water, I don't think that those perched aquifers that they're regulating, I don't think they really have any effect on these deep water aquifers, this deep primary water. Right, because it comes from up inside the earth. I want to go back to my question to you about minerals. I want to re-ask the question because I think you addressed the question specifically connected and related to water. I want to re-ask the question now with water not in the picture, okay? I buy a piece of property. Do I own the mineral rights to that property? Yes, you do unless some previous owner of that land has reserved minerals or severed mineral rights or sold mineral rights to someone else. How would I know that if I'm buying that property? Those kind of records are almost always recorded at the county recorder's office. That's why they do title searches whenever people buy property and they have title insurance. It's to make sure that if there's any encumbrances or any prior reservation or sale of minerals, that the uh, the current owner or the person who's buying the land, the buyer, uh, is aware that there are outstanding mineral rights owned by other persons or easements or right-of-ways or any other kind of encumbrance. Is it true that the air over your property or your land can also be purchased? In other words, you buy a piece of property, but somebody can do whatever they want over your property above you. Are you familiar with that? Yes, that is also part of this whole concept of split estates. There are instances of where previous owners have either sold airspace rights. For example, if you're in a flight path of a airport, you know, this is something that developed in the last hundred years, of course, with the development of aviation. But there are court cases that deal with that. There have been takings cases of where the military built an air base and their flights caused some disturbance to adjacent landowners, and the government was forced to have to pay compensation for taking those airspace rights. So my question to you is, the land that you currently own right now, do you own your own airspace rights? And if you don't, how do you buy them or take possession of them? When you buy a piece of property, it's assumed, unless there are documents to the contrary, that you own everything from the center of the earth to the heavens above, is the way it's phrased. And so unless there is some outstanding reservation of airspace rights, then it can be legally assumed that you own already own the airspace above your property. I think that if the military decides they want access to it, they're going to just use it, period. But I get what well, you're saying. Also, I'll, I'll say this, uh, just as a caveat. Different states have established limits to airspace rights over private property. Can you name a few? In Arizona, I believe you own 
300 or 500 feet above your property. And then that way, a commercial airliner flying over 30,000 feet is not infringing on your airspace. But if you wanted to get more airspace above your property reserved, who do people call? I think that's a political question there. And it would just depend on what your own particular state's laws are in that regard. Talk a little bit about the split estate properties, what that means, and explain it. Well, originally, under English common law, it was assumed that if you were the title holder or the fee owner of the land, that you would own everything from the center of the earth to the heavens above. But in the United States, as time progressed, people started doing things like severing mineral rights or reserving mineral rights whenever they sold a piece of property. The whole split estate concept grew out of the reservation of mineral rights or the separate sale of various types of mineral rights. And so then what came to be known as the traditional concept of split estates was where one person would own the surface, but someone else might own the mineral rights underneath. But then you had things like right-of-ways, easements, right-of-ways, and those type of property rights are ancient. Under the Spanish law, they go back you know, many centuries. When you say it's ancient, why do you say that? Well, I say in terms of written history. Okay. It's well documented that hundreds, maybe even thousands of years ago, from the time they first started keeping records, these type of property rights were reserved or could be held back or purchased separately. And so they're concepts that are well established yes. over time, but not well understood by the general public unless they stop for a moment and give some thought to it. For example, you could live in a city right now, the middle of a city, and if you go down to the recorder's office, you might find out that you actually own title to the land out to the center of the street in front of your house. But the city has a right-of-way for that street. They may even have a right-of-way for a sidewalk. And so even though you own the legal title, it's actually a split estate because of these reserved right-of-ways or easements. Right. So almost every piece of property in the United States today exists in some form of a split estate where even though the legal title might be owned by one person, there are numerous other real property interests that could belong to someone else. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. The Declaration of a National and International Water Crisis is a declaration about water that comes directly from snowmelt and rainfall. It has nothing to do with the water that exists below your feet, underground, into faulted structures all over the world. I want you to know that there is an unlimited supply of available fresh water everywhere on Earth, including the deserts. For over 100 years, teams of people have been locating water for private people and the reason you haven't heard of it is that it is not part of the mainstream orthodoxy of geology that's taught at universities. When you think about people and animals in developing nations having to walk miles to bring back a bucket of water, I want you to know that that is an unacceptable atrocity. Nobody should have to go through that. I've made a commitment to make water available to sophisticated investors and to people in need. 
across the world. And to make commercial applications available for water in the United States and abroad, there's only a water crisis as it relates to snowmelt and rainfall, not having to do with the third source of water, which is below our feet. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are a sophisticated investor or a farmer that would be interested in having your own water supply that is independent of the aquifers, feel free to call It's Rainmaking Time. The good news is that there's plenty of water everywhere for anybody and any animal on planet Earth that needs it. Thank you very much. And back to the show. You say that improvements and water rights and easements are real property, correct? They are, yes. The definition of real estate may vary slightly from one state to another. But in general, the term real estate refers to a specific parcel of land with legal boundaries, latitude and longitude, or GPS, Now, within that parcel of real estate, there can be various different types of real property. And real property and real estate are not necessarily the same thing. For example, a right-of-way, an easement, a water right, mineral rights. These are all various types of split estate real property interests. Let's say you own one acre of land and a ditch runs through that. There could be a right-of-way for the ditch. And there could be 10 different owners on that ditch, and each one of those 10 different owners owns a water right and have a right to divert water through that ditch. And so even though it runs across your land, you yourself do not have the right to divert that water and use it yourself. It sounds like a sticky wicket and like we're going down the rabbit hole in a sense, at least legally. Why would anyone who's buying a piece of property want to buy property where somebody else owns the mineral rights or some other type of real property rights. Isn't that a sticky wicket of ownership? Doesn't it add massive complexity to a transaction and the whole function of ownership? Sometimes people just need the land itself. Uh, Maybe they're just interested in growing crops. They're not really interested in developing the mineral rights. And if you buy a piece of property that has the mineral rights severed from it, you're going to pay less typically for that piece of property than you would if you were buying that parcel with the mineral rights. Except for one thing I would say to you, just knowing what I know now about mining, that is until the mining companies get in there, then they can destroy, and I'm talking now not mineral rights, like mineral structure of the land They can deplete the land. They could frack the land. I see what you're saying about the acquisition could be much cheaper, let's say, if you're growing crops. But it's like a doorway for a mining company to come in and do whatever they want. Well, there are state laws on reclamation, and it varies also from state to state. They have this defined out pretty much down to the nth degree on various things. Some states do, some states don't. But things like the support structure, a mining company can mine underneath your land as long as they don't cause big sinkholes to start forming where your buildings and your service structures are falling in. They disturb the service, they have to restore it, or they have to pay the service owner compensation. Uh, There's various ways in which they handle these things legally. Legally or also lawfully? Well, there are legal requirements that they have to meet, 
have to put up bonds or they have to have written agreements with the service owner. There's different ways that they handle these type of situations when they come up. I want to go back to the 100th meridian. Why the 100th meridian is the dividing point? Well, even in the 1800s, they kept records on rainfall. And by the late 1800s, when they passed these laws, such as the Desert Land Act, for example, Congress knew where the 30-inch rainfall zone ended. And they had enough common knowledge and enough information and study to realize that that 30-inch rainfall belt was just about the extent of where you could raise crops on any kind of a reliable year-to-year basis without irrigation. And that 30-inch rainfall belt, at least according to their data that they had at that time, fell just about right where the 100th meridian is. And so that's why they chose the 100th meridian. It wasn't just a number they drew out of a hat. There was a logical basis for them using that as the line of demarcation between riparian and prior appropriation doctrine. Could you explain homesteading of property to people? Originally, the concept of land ownership in the United States has its roots in the philosophy of John Locke, the political philosopher who was an inspiration to a lot of our founding fathers in our country. The concept of private ownership was somewhat new because most of them had come from kingdoms. Over Most of the immigrants had come from England or Germany or France, countries that were ruled over by a king. And in those countries, there wasn't any true fee private ownership of land. The king ultimately owned the land. That's why we have a provision in our Constitution that government cannot take private property without due process and just compensation because they felt that each person was sovereign and each person had a right to the ownership of their own land. And early on, they had determined that 160 acres was a generous amount and more than sufficient for the support of a individual family. And so when the government first started setting up their homestead laws, originally, you know, they had other names. They were essentially a prior appropriation type of a land law. And that law applied really well up until they got to the western part of the United States. And when they hit that 30-inch rainfall zone, 160 acres wasn't enough to support a family. They needed more land. The land was more arid. It didn't produce as much in the way of being able to sustain crops. And so they started to expand the homestead laws, first to 320 acres. Then under the Desert Land Act of 1877, they allowed someone who had already homesteaded 160 acres to take up an additional 640. And eventually, in 1902, Congress fully adopted what they called a unit policy, the farm unit, became the measure. And that could only be determined by doing surveys and having federal government examiners, people that worked for the land office, the land department, to come out and make a determination in order to classify land as to how much was needed to support a family. And by about 19, I'm going to say 1930, uh, 1929 actually, Congress basically had abandoned these arbitrary acreage limitations and had instead adopted this farm unit policy. And so homesteads were allowed at any acreage amount as long as it was sufficient for the support of a family. 
That's how they defined it. It had to be done through this government classification system. So that's how we have today what are called grazing allotments on these federal BLM and Forest Service lands. Why do a homestead versus buy real estate? What's the distinction? Because for some people, they'll think it's the same thing. It's not. Congress, back during what was called the homestead period, based on the, the 1862 Homestead Act, Congress wanted to encourage settlement of the western lands. They had acquired the Louisiana Purchase from France. They acquired the Southwest Session from Mexico after the Mexican-American War that ended in 1848. They acquired the Northwest Territory, which took in primarily the Oregon, Washington, Idaho, part of Montana, that area, from uh, Great Britain by treaty. And they had this vast area of land occupied primarily by Native Americans that they wanted to populate with citizens who would then be loyal to the United States. And so they passed these various homestead laws saying that if you would go out, settle on a piece of land under this Lockean concept, this concept of John Lockett, where you acquire property in the wilderness state by mixing your labor with the land. So you would go out there, settle on the land, improve it, build a house, live on it, and by your own labor, you would mix your toil, your sweat, your labor with that land, and thereby attach a part of yourself to this land. That was their concept of a natural acquisition of a property right. You have now mixed part of your labor with the land. You now have a right to it that excludes the common right of other people. And they wanted to encourage people to come out, settle on the land, populate the land, be productive, because that's how they got tax revenue, is by making people productive and then charging them a tax, and then the federal government would then get a revenue, and there would be thriving communities, and the country would expand. That was the plan. I want to take that further. When you spoke earlier about homesteading and patenting the property, Why do that? What is that provision for? That's mainly based on the requirements of the Homestead Act of 1862. There were subsequent cases where Congress had given title to land through various acts that Congress had passed, given title to individuals or provided a way for people to acquire land. And some of those acts did not contain any provisions or requirements that you had to acquire a patent, a legal document from the government. So when disputes came up over that and the people went to court, some of them even tried to get the Interior Department to issue them a patent. And the Interior Department said, we cannot issue you a patent because the law does not require us to issue a patent. The only thing required is that you have some legal claim that you can cite to some act of Congress. And so in those cases, the courts held that that was all that was necessary. Congress passed a law that said, if you do this, this, and this, then the land's yours. And you don't need a patent to prove that you have ownership. You only have to prove that you've done those things required under the law. And so some areas of the western part of the United States, particularly were settled under laws that contain no requirement or provision for the issuance of a patent. So a lot of those lands, even though they don't have a patent, a piece of paper from the federal government saying this is your land, 
those people have just as legitimate a claim of ownership as people that settled under some of the various homestead laws that required the issuance of a patent. Do you have a homestead? I own a piece of land that was patented under the homestead laws back 100 years ago, but I don't have a copy of the original patent. But you know what? The Department of Interior has a website. Give them the legal description of your property, and they can send you a copy of the original patent for that piece of land that was issued to whoever the original homesteader was. So what if you bought a piece of property and somebody else owns the land patent? That's why I have title insurance. And that's why they record these things in every county. There's a county recorder's office, and their main job is to record the sales and purchases of property. And when you buy a piece of land, that's why you get title insurance. That company is basically saying, we have researched your title far enough back that we are certain that you have a free and clear legal title this land. And if someone else comes up later and tries to assert ownership of that land, then you can go to that title insurance company and they would have to pay you for whatever the loss is that you would suffer if you lose that piece of property in a legal argument in court. Can you talk a little bit about the Desert Land Act? Well, you know, there were several dozen different homestead laws that Congress passed A lot of land is also patented under the mineral land laws. They were originally patented as mining claims. How would we find out about those? Same way, if you go to that Department of Interior website, and I can't remember what the address is, but if you go to that website and you put in the legal description of your property, they can go back and find the original patent under which that land was transferred, and it may have been under the mining laws. If it was, it would say so on the original patent. Don't you think that should be public information and transparent at all times? I believe it is public information. I think anyone who wants to can go onto that website and find out that information. Yeah, but if we have to wait till they mail information, you should be able to know that even before you buy a piece of property. It would be great. I'm, I'm trying to remember. It's been a while since I've been on there, but I believe they've digitized and copied all of those patents. I can't say it with 100% certainty, but I think just about any place, at least in the Western United States, I believe you can go onto that website and pull up an electronic copy of those. Fantastic. Do you think that common law in the United States is so obscure now that it's barely even thought about? I have to be honest and say I'm not sure if it is. And I'm not sure if it's all that relevant either because property rights are well defined in state law nowadays what a person owns or is entitled to or what they're not entitled to and very rarely do instances of common law claims come up in state courts nowadays what are some of the biggest challenges in your experience now with property and water in the united states what are the big concerns you have in your field Well, the fact that in the western states, which is where I deal with almost exclusively because the area of expertise that I have, I think the biggest conflict is the fact that most of the water rights in the western United States, when I say most, I'm talking about in volume, are owned by people that are involved in agriculture because it takes a lot of water to grow a crop. So in a lot of areas, a lot of surface waters by volume are owned 
by farmers or ranchers. And on the other hand, you have cities that are growing every year bigger and bigger with larger populations. Farmers and ranchers are, are a very small minority. You're talking in the 2 and 3% of the population that are actually involved in producing crops and growing food or, or livestock. Yet those are the people that own the largest amount in quantity of water rights. And then you've got these cities with huge populations, and they've got their demands. And so there's a lot of political pressure put on elected representatives to get more of that water to be able to use it for watering lawns, filling swimming pools, watering golf courses, things that the people in the city are interested in. And so that's where a lot of conflict over land and water is coming from. You also have this detached population that's living in the city that, whether real or imagined, have concerns about wildlife populations or other environmental causes. In their mind, their perception is that these farmers and ranchers are somehow hurting the natural environment or what they consider to be a natural environment. But because they're so detached from the land, they don't really understand what it takes to produce food for people to eat. They think everything comes out of the grocery store. They just go down to Walmart. That's where things come from. They don't understand that people have to actually drill for oil or dig up coal to generate electricity or raise crops in order to have grain to make flour to make bread. There's a really big detachment of our society from the producers or the productive side of our society that actually produces all the food and the goods that people need to live. They don't see that agriculture, for example, is important. So why should those farmers have all that water? We need it for our golf course. We need it for a swimming pool. Maybe there's a portion of the population that thinks that way, but as an environmentalist, as someone who respects agriculture and ranchers, there's a lot of us that don't think that way. Most of the environmentalists that I have met are very connected to growing their own food, actually. They're very concerned about everything having to do with ecology. But I think that environmentalists are often guilty of a violent reflex against big ag business, like a Monsanto. But I've never met someone who was environmentally concerned who didn't want people to grow food. So maybe it's the right. kind of maybe uh, it's know, the it's kind hard, of it's yeah. hard to talk in generality yeah. because there yeah. are exceptions. But in general, I'd say that that's where a lot of our conflict in our society is coming from: is there are demands on resources. And I've always had the position that hey, if society thinks that letting the water of the Colorado River flow freely through its original channel, if that is what society wants and that's more important, and if enough people think that's important and they go to their elected representatives and say, hey, we want to take all that water that these farmers are using and put it back in the river, they have the power of eminent domain. If they feel like that's a legitimate government purpose and they want to condemn that water, pay the rancher the value of it, and then put it back in the creek or into the river, you know, we have a legal process to do that. But when government agencies and politicians just simply take people's water rights, which are recognized as legitimate property. Right. You're talking about confiscation, really. 
Absolutely, and that's what farmers and ranchers are dealing with on a daily basis, the kind of pressure where they're being told, okay, you can either set aside half your ranch as habitat for this or that particular endangered species, or we're going to just do it by regulation anyway. That's the kind of coercion that farmers and ranchers are facing nowadays from bureaucrats and politicians. It's a real power grab. In essence, by this happening, we are witnessing the destruction of real property, the confiscation of real property, the usurping of what we consider to be viable ownership. That's right. And what should concern these urban property owners in general is the fact that if they can do this to these farmers, what's going to stop government from doing it to them? Great question. They should be concerned about what's happening to these farmers and ranchers that are having these resource issues used as leverage or the pry bar to separate them from their property rights. If government can use that kind of leverage on them, they can use it on anybody. That's why everyone needs to be concerned about what's happening with property rights in our country right now. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. It's funny how sometimes you don't take action until people have died. I remember visiting my mother in an Alzheimer's facility in Studio City, and my cousins, Carol and Dan, were there. And I had this little tape recorder with me. My dad had passed on five years before. And I started to interview my cousins, Carol and Dan, about my parents because they were very close to them, and they knew them for many years even before they were married. I want you to know that I got the funniest most adorable stories about my mom and dad that I would have never heard otherwise. I kid you not. I found out that my dad, Buddy Greenhouse, used to invite people to massive parties, bring everybody together, and then they'd all get to the party and they go, where's Buddy? And he was not there. In other words, he would just put the whole thing together, get everybody to come, and sometimes he would not show up. Now, you may not think that's funny. You may think that's rude and all that, but I thought that was hysterical. When I first heard about it, it's just not something that I would think that my dad was capable of, but apparently he was. Many of you listening to the show are going to wait until your parents and your sisters and brothers and cousins pass on before you ever capture the wonderful stories and legacy of your family. I'm making a very special service available to those of you that would like me to interview your family and capture the wonderful stories that are the gift of your family legacy. It's a really special service. It's very confidential and private and can be done in either audio or video. Don't miss the occasion to capture the living legacy of your family and the great treasures that are sitting there. I'm a miner. I know how to get to those treasures. Call me at its rainmaking time at 626-398-8652. Thank you. And back to the show. How many people are like you in this country that can help ranchers and farmers and other people? How many do you think there are, honestly, who are really qualified to be of core use? Well, I don't think there's a whole lot. There might be maybe a dozen. I'd hate to have to start naming names. I can't say that there aren't more people that are educated or understanding of what's going on. There could be more. But unfortunately, in my experience, what I learned in doing my doctoral dissertation was that most lawyers in the United States do not have a real concept of what's happening, particularly with ranchers that have to deal with these federal land agencies. They're steeped. 
false mythology of what's called public land law, and they don't understand the difference between public land and split estate land. They assume that because the federal government holds a legal title, for example, to BLM or Forest Service administered lands that the federal government owns legal title, that all property interests belong to the federal government. That's their assumption. But in reality, for example, in 1978, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that all stock water rights, water rights for watering livestock, in the national forest belong to the individual rancher, not to the United States. So there's a very good example of split estate property rights, but very few people understand that. They think that because they look at a map and they see this big green area that says National Forest, that the federal government must automatically own everything that's in there, which is a a false assumption. It's a mythology. And very few lawyers even understand that. When they go to law school, they have a very narrow curriculum that they follow, contract law one semester, uh, constitutional law another semester, or, or maybe even just one course in each of those things. And it isn't until they get out into the real world of practicing law that they specialize in things like real estate or family law or whatever their specialty might be. And so if a farmer or rancher in one of these rural communities goes to a lawyer in their community... That lawyer may only understand family law because he deals with divorces or DUIs or simple business contract law and things like that. So there's not a really good source for people to go to. When I first started writing my doctoral dissertation on valuing split estate ranches, there was very little in the way of material that was published. A lot of it was original research that I had to go into the federal laws and into the congressional record to dig it out in order to have the information to cite the sources for people to go to so they can understand how this whole situation developed that we have in the West of all these split state lands that exist. Very complex. Very complex. Thank God you're alive. How do people get in touch with you? Or do you want them to get in touch with you? Is there a website you have? You know, I don't have a website. I've been thinking about that. I work a lot with an organization called USA Law that Ronnie Bell Sylvester is the editor for. It's a group of people that are involved in Western land issues and water issues, and I work with them. I work with ranchers in Nevada, just different people that are concerned with this area of law that I deal with. So if people need an expert witness or legal guidance, do they call USA Law or are they contact usalaw.com? Um, that is one way they could get a hold of me is through them. You know, it's mainly been word of mouth over the years. I work one-on-one with individual ranchers. I don't work with big corporations. Like you said, you know, I'm more concerned about keeping the family farmers and the family ranchers, which are the backbone of our country, keeping them in business. And when I worked for the Forest Service, I worked with ranchers on an individual basis, and that's just kind of the way I've always done things. And if they have a neighbor or somebody that is in trouble, it's usually been by word of mouth that they've said, hey, call this guy, maybe he can help you out. And so that's kind of how I've worked over the last 20 years. Do you like being an expert witness as well? I do. Like I said, it's a narrow area of all the ranchers in the United States that have to deal with the Bureau of Land Management or the U.S. Forest Service or any of these other large federal land agencies. There's maybe 60,000 
or so that really have to deal with them. So it's a really small population of people that are really personally interested in a lot of the work that I do. But of course, the application is much wider than that. Just the application of understanding split estate property rights is pretty far-ranging, really, because almost everyone in the United States, even though they don't know this, their property is probably a split estate. Even though they may own the legal title, there's other legal entities that own interests that cover their land, whether it be a right-of-way for a power company or sidewalk for the city. Most people probably don't even realize that they don't really own all the real property interests that exist within the four corners of their legally titled property. That's profound. I did a show last summer on something called clouded titles, about how you can buy a piece of property and the chain of title is hidden from you and hidden even from the title companies because of where it's located, how you can have investors on the back end of a property that you own and not even know it. It was profound revelation. And so this split estate scenario that you're talking about is very, very important. So would you say that in your experience, probably most of the property in the U.S. is split estate? I would say so, because even someone that owns just a lot within a city has various right-of-ways imposed over their property. If they went down to the county recorder's office and got the legal description of their property and saw where their actual boundaries were, their boundary may extend all the way to the center of the street running in front of their house. There could be right-of-ways for utilities across their property that they didn't even know about. There could be any number of different real property interests on that small lot. It's profound. What you're doing is so important. I want to thank you for joining us at It's Rainmaking Time. Is there anything else you'd like to say as we close the show today? If anybody wants to get in contact with me and feels like I have information that would be helpful to them, you are more than welcome to share my contact information with any of your listeners that would want to get a hold of me. For those of you who would like to contact Angus McIntosh, you can go to the website landandwaterusa.com and leave a message for him. Or you can contact Ronnie Bell Sylvester at 970-284-6874 and she will get into contact with him. I want to thank you for being with us and thank you for all the work that you're doing to protect ranchers and food growers, farmers and the rest of us. Ladies and gentlemen, we've been talking with Dr. Angus McIntosh. Please share this with everybody that you know. It's rainmaking time. Thank you very much, Dr. McIntosh.